0: Philippians, to Philippians 2. And we will look at verses 12 through 18 tonight. And and I hope that you're excited. I hope you're happy about being here because I'm really excited. This is a really good passage and a really challenging passage for us as, as the church. And so I'm excited to walk through it with you and to encourage you and to challenge you tonight. So what I want to do is I want to read it and then I'll pray and then we'll We'll get into it. So follow along with me. Philippians chapter two, we'll start at verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to work and to will for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for the word of God, which instructs us, which builds us up, encourages us, yet also challenges us. And God, we have, we have learned from the book of Philippians that you are doing all of those things. And God, as we come to this passage tonight, we see that you are doing it yet again. God, I pray you would use this passage that I preach to encourage the church, to build up the church, but also to challenge the church. And God, we ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen. So I titled the sermon, Christ Changes Lives. And the, the call to worship passage in Jeremiah is, is an example of that. It's Jeremiah telling the people of God how they're going to be changed in the future. He says, God is going to change your heart. He's gonna write his law on your heart. And you're gonna be people who no longer stray from him and run from him, but you're gonna be people who love him and cling to him. So clearly, Jeremiah is talking about a person who's been changed. And I think most of you know Tyson Lott. Tyson Lott is a good friend of mine. He's a, a member of our church, I have a, a specific, uh, specifically close bond with Tyson because he and his wife, Anna, asked me to marry them. And they were the first and so far the only couple that I have married as an ordained minister. And so I'm very close to them and I love them very much. And so yesterday, he and Anna agreed to babysit Graham while Sam and I went out on a date, which is very kind of them. Uh, but yesterday, he informs me, he says, so Auburn is playing a football game at 330 30. So here's the situation. Either I'm coming over before the game or I'm speeding on the interstate during halftime to get there so that you all can go out. And I said, well, you're more than welcome to come over before the game and watch it with us, but that's not what happened. So halftime comes and I just knew, like Tyson's speeding on the interstate to get here. And sure enough, right before the third quarter begins, they're there. And so if you don't know Tyson or if you don't know much about him, he is an Auburn alumni, huge Auburn fan. Went there all four years of college. Uh, I don't think he ever missed a single basketball game the whole time there, and to which I responded, I didn't know they had a basketball team. <laughs> but, but he also loves football, and they happen to have a good football team this year. And so yesterday, they were playing the number one ranked team in the country, Georgia, and they put the smackdown on them, and it was not pretty. They beat them easily, okay? And so Tyson, who's at my house right before we leave on a date, he's watching the game, and he's clearly excited, so we leave and, and Sam and I are out. We enjoy our day. And then when we get back, the game is over. Auburn has won and there's another game on TV. And this time it's Alabama, which is the enemy of Auburn. And Alabama is losing. And so Tyson is like out of, outside of himself. He is just so happy. He's rooting so hard for Alabama to lose, which unfortunately did not happen. But at one point, As we're hanging out after we'd got home, Anna has to turn to Tyson and say, I need you to turn that Auburn fandom down just a little bit. You know, like it's a little over the top right now. And we all have had an experience like this, whether it's with sports or or other things in life. We have things that we like and things that we enjoy. And what happens is when things are going well, whether it's a sports team or something else, it changes how we feel. We start to be more excited, more expressive. We like to tell everyone who we're a fan of. You know, earlier in the year, before Penn State lost two games in a row, I was wearing my, my fleece jacket real proudly, saying, oh man, number two team in the country. This is awesome. And then they lost two games in a row, and well, I'll wear another jacket. And that's just how we are, right? There are certain things outside of ourselves that change us a little bit. Now in that example, obviously that's a temporary change But Paul talks about a change that's permanent, that's lasting. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. Verse 12 begins with the word, therefore. Now, when you see the word, therefore, in Scripture, you've you've always got to keep in mind, they're saying, therefore, because what they're about to say is directly related to what they just said. Now, last week, Robbie preached to us about the Christ hymn, which is verses five, or 6 through 11 of Philippians 2. And in this Christ hymn, we read about Jesus who was equal with God. He is God himself. And what he did is he, he did not count his status as God as something to, to use to his advantage, but rather he gave that up. He humbled himself, becoming a man, just like you and just like me. And he humbled himself to the point of death. Even death on a cross is what Paul says. And because he did that, because he he lowered himself to a, to a, a man like you and me, and he died on a cross, it says that God has given him a name that is above every name. That at his name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Now Paul says... Therefore, okay, so we don't just take that truth and and hold it up as this is awesome. Paul says we take that truth, and because that's true, therefore, it affects how we live. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation, With fear and trembling. Now, here's one of the reasons I was really excited about this passage is because verse 12 is perhaps one of the more interesting, difficult verses in the New Testament. There are others, but this one is strange for us, as maybe particularly as Southern Baptists, because it seems to say, or it almost sounds like it says, we have to work for our salvation. Let me read it again. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Kind of a tough verse, right? So before we get to working out your own salvation, what is, what is he saying by, as you have always obeyed? I think the first thing Paul is doing before he calls the church to action, is he's encouraging them on what he has seen them doing right. If you look back at chapter 1, Paul says he's, he's expressing his thankfulness to God for the church, for the people who are at Philippi. He says in verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. In verse 5 he says, Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So Paul is reminded that this church at Philippi were partners with him in the gospel. That means they have the same goal in mind that Paul has. They want God to receive glory through the church spreading throughout the whole world. We want more of what we saw this morning. Someone coming forward and saying that they need to be forgiven of their sins and they want to serve Christ as Lord. Paul says, you are partners with me in the gospel. Again, he says in verse seven, he says, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace. He says, we've experienced the grace of God together. We've experienced God's goodness towards us together. And so now when he's calling the church to action, he's reminding them that they have always obeyed. He's reminding them, you all have been a good, excellent, faithful church. But now he's about to say, but we can do that even more. We can be faithful even more. We can obey God even more. And so he's encouraging them in that, as you have always obeyed, and now he says this little interesting phrase, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. This, we understand this. Let's say that we're having dinner one night at our own home and we get a phone call and Pastor Josh is gonna come join us. Well, guess what? We're all gonna hop up real quick. We're gonna put things in the right place. We're gonna all right, get a collared shirt on, get that junk off. You're gonna put something nice on. Everybody's gonna look good. You're gonna act good. You're gonna you know, present like we're a good, happy family, right? We're gonna put our best foot forward because the pastor's coming. We want to impress him. We want him to think well of us. And maybe it's not necessarily Josh as the pastor, but you could insert anyone that you respect and esteem into that equation, and the same is true. And Paul is saying, I don't want you just to obey when I'm there. I don't want you just to act like you love God and want to serve him and worship him just when I'm with you. I want you to do that even more when I'm not there. Because I'm not the equation. I'm not the factor here, is what Paul is wanting to say. But now we get to this interesting phrase in verse 12. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So he seems to be saying that there is work to be done in in connection with salvation. So how do we understand this? Well, to understand this properly, I want us to look back at the book of Ephesians, which is just the next book back, right before this book, and this is also written by Paul, and there are some very popular verses in here that maybe most of us know, maybe some of you have them memorized, but Ephesians chapter two, verses eight, nine, and 10. Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So that's verses eight and nine. And he makes it very clear that salvation is a gift from God. It's by grace. That means God in his own goodness offered salvation to us, not because of anything that we've done, but because he loves us, because he's kind. And then he says it's uh, it's by grace that we're saved through faith. To be saved, we have to have faith in God. That means we have to believe God. We have to believe that what he offers us is salvation through his son. And he makes very crystal clear in verse nine, it is not a result of works, so that no one may boast. I wanna be clear tonight that you're saved because of nothing that you've done. Paul would labor that point. We are not saved based on anything that we have done. But now look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Paul makes it crystal clear, works are not what get you to salvation. But works are a result of salvation. He makes it clear, it's not that we work to be saved, but when we're saved, we then work. We're created to work, or recreated, if you will. Because Paul talks about us being raised to newness of life when we're saved. And when we are, he says, we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now, back over to Philippians 2. So he says, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So how do we understand this? How does this fit with what Paul just said about the fact that we're not saved by working, but when we're saved, we work? Well, let's... Let's get a better idea of what's happening at the church in Philippi. If you look back with me at chapter 1, verse 15, Paul says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. In verse 17, he says, The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. Now, nowhere in this passage does Paul indicate that these people who are preaching Christ out of selfish ambition are false teachers. Nothing in this passage makes us think that. He makes it seem like these are genuine believers, people who are part of the church. But yet in their preaching Christ, they have selfish motives. We don't know a whole lot else, but we can assume that maybe he's talking about people in the church at Philippi. He doesn't give us reason to think otherwise. Look also at verse 27 of chapter one. And here's where we see the theme of the whole book. One of the main themes, he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Here's what Paul wants for the church at Philippi. He says, I want you all unified. I want you all to be of the same spirit. In chapter two, we get an idea that there's a little bit of disunity happening in this church. Look at verses three and four, chapter two. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Verse four, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Look at chapter four, verse two. He says, I entreat Eudia and I entreat Synecdoche to agree in the Lord. Clearly, these are two individuals who are not agreeing. They're butting heads. They're disagreeing. There's something not right between them. So there's hints all over the letter that, that the church at Philippi is dealing with some disunity. People are not on the same page. And so Paul says... We need to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So think about this. A football team is 11 guys on each side of the football on the field at any given time. So if you were to grab just 11 random people and throw them out there to play football, even against, we'll say, Fairdale High School's football team, do you think they would have very much success? Probably not. You can't just grab 11 random dudes, put them out there on the field, and expect them to, to be excellent. It takes work, doesn't it? It takes hard work to get 11 separate individuals on the same page with the same goal in mind to where things start clicking and they start working together as a team. In the same way, think about our church. I was looking at the Bulletin this morning and it said that our attendance last week was 190. You think it's hard to get 11 people on the same page to start clicking, to start getting the wheels rolling, moving in the same direction? Think about 190. Paul is saying that what he wants to see in the church is unity. He wants to see us all on the same page with the same goal in mind. Now, is that gonna happen by chance with 190 people? No, that's gonna take work. And what Paul is saying here in verse 12 is not that we're we're working so that we'll be saved, but he says now that we are saved, now that we are Christians, that God has spilled his blood for us to forgive us of our sins, he says we now have to work to create unity within the church. We learn from Ephesians that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. I think a lot of us tend to think, I believed on Jesus and I can kick it into cruise control. Because it's, it's just smooth sailing from here until heaven. The Bible doesn't teach that. Paul doesn't teach that. Paul is saying, look, church, if we are gonna be unified, if we're gonna be on the same page, if we are going to get to one common location, we have to each and individually work at it. Remember, he just got done telling us about the example of Christ's humility. How he laid down his own self to become like us as a man. He humbled himself to the point of death. Now remember, Paul started verse 12 with the, the word therefore. Because of the example of Christ's humility, therefore, church, we need to follow that example, humble ourselves, and work for unity in the church. It's not gonna come by accident. It's not going to come just because we really hope it comes. It's going to take work from each and every single one of us. We have to work to die to ourselves each and every day, to put our sin to death and to work towards unity in the spirit, the same love, serving the same spirit. That's what he means when he says that we need to work out our own salvation, or we could say it another way, to live out our salvation. Verse 13, he makes it abundantly clear that we're not working for salvation. He says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So he reminds the church, look, there's work to be done. That's gonna be hard. No one says that's gonna be easy, but let me remind you that if you're a Christian believing in God, he says, God is working in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You know what that means? That means God is at work in your life right now to bring about his good pleasure. What do you think God's good pleasure is for Christians? Unity, right? He wants us all to be focused on the same thing, which is his son Jesus, which is telling others of his son Jesus. If you're here tonight and you are saved, you've been forgiven of your sins, God is at work in you. And for us, to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling means to humble ourselves, to get over ourselves, and to serve one another as Christ has served us. Now look at verse 14. Starts a new paragraph here, and Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Verse 14 is perhaps a verse that some of you parents have memorized and quoted to your kids hundreds and hundreds of times. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Perhaps he's thinking of these two Uh, people in chapter four that he calls out who are clearly grumbling and disputing. They're not getting along. And Paul is saying, church, we have got to do what we do without grumbling with each other, without complaining with each other, and without grumbling before God, without complaining before God. And here's why. Because verse 15, he says, that you may be, innocent, uh, sorry, blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. I don't want anyone to raise a hand, but how many of us can sit here tonight? We can look at our own heart and say, I'm blameless and innocent. A child of God without blemish. This is what Paul says we should Be aiming for. This is the goal. This is where we need to set our sights. I don't know about you, but I'm often one that if I'm going to make a goal, I want to make it a little less than achievable because I don't want to have to not get there. You can ask my wife. She's smirking. If I'm going to set a goal, I'm going to make sure that I can easily get there. And Paul is saying that's not what we get to do as a church because we don't set where the bar is. God does. And here's the bar blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. That describes one person, Jesus. Paul says that's the standard. That's the standard. Now, why do we need to be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish? He says because we live in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And I don't need to spend much time on that. If you all watch the news, if you all watch social media, you're aware of that. Now look at what he says. Among whom you shine as lights in the world. I like photography, and I like space—kind of a space nerd. But one of the things that I really like is photos from space. And maybe you've seen some where uh, they—the International Space Station flies over a part of the Earth where it's nighttime, and they take a picture. And all you see are the lights that are coming from that country. And even though you can't see the actual outline of the country itself and the ocean and all that, you can tell what country it is based on the lights and where they go and where they stop. Fascinating. That's the first thing I thought of when I read this. If we were to look at Fairdale, Kentucky, pitch black at at night, not thinking about these types of lights, but thinking about a light light. As far as a gospel presence in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, where would those lights be shining? Would they be shining in your home? Would they be shining in your neighborhood, on your street? Would they be shining in your place of work or at the grocery store that you frequent? Where would those lights be shining? Paul says, we need to do things without grumbling and disputing because we need to be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in a crooked and twisted generation, and we need to shine as lights in the world. We live amongst a crooked and twisted generation. You all nodded in agreement that we do. Paul is saying, we know that's true, but we can do something about it. We need to live as lights in that situation, in that twisted and crooked generation. And now look what he says in verse 16. Perhaps we need to underline this in our Bible. Such a fantastic verse. He says, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. You wanna know how you're gonna be a light in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, Paul says you need to hold fast to the word of life. This. He says we've got to cling to the Bible. We've got to let the Bible instruct everything that we do. We've got to let the Bible instruct every decision that we make. We've got to let the Bible influence every conversation that we have. That is how you live as a light in the midst of a twisted and crooked generation. One of the things that's awesome about a church is that we're so different from the world. You find a church that doesn't preach against sin, that doesn't preach that there are things that are right and there are things that are wrong, and it may seem cool for a while, but it never lasts. As soon as people start going and they just accept anybody, any kind of sins that you're dealing with, you don't need to repent, you can just, come on, we'll welcome you. It never lasts. Because the, the world is not interested in being part of a church that looks just like itself. But when the church is so different from the world, when the church is full of people who cling to the word of life, it's different. It's different and it's gonna attract those who are out in the dark. Just like your light on your porch attracts all the bugs in the summertime that you don't want, that's what's gonna happen. If we're shining as a light in a twisted and crooked generation, it will inevitably attract those who are out in the darkness. Now, I want you to know what's also true. Paul's about to finish up here. He says, holding fast to the word of life So that in the day of Christ, when I stand before him in judgment, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Christian, let me encourage you tonight. If you hold fast to the word of life, your life is not lived in vain, it's not worthless, it's not meaningless. You may feel like it is. Maybe you've look at your own life and you feel like you don't have a very big circle of influence and you don't really have a whole lot of people around you that you're building up or encouraging or or people around you that are getting saved. But if you are absolutely clinging to the word of life, Paul says, Your your life is so worthwhile. You will be able to stand before Jesus in judgment and be proud that you did not live your life in vain, that you didn't work in vain. Because those who cling to the word of God, your life matters. Because the word of God will stand forever. Nothing else will. Now in verse 17, we have a repeat of something that that he has already said. He says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Does that sound similar to something he already said? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul says, even if my life ends for your sake, in the service of you, I'm glad. I rejoice because I know my life was not in vain. And I know that to live is to live for Christ. But to die, honestly, is even better. And then he encourages the church in verse 18 and says, Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul says, if I do die, if I do give my life in serving you, don't be sad. Obviously, we'll be sad for a time. He says, you can rejoice with me because it's better that I go than if I had stayed. I thought about this this passage this morning as I looked over here and I saw Miss Anna sitting by herself. We are sad that Mr. Ray is gone. But we can rejoice that his life was lived with a purpose, that he was clinging to the word of God. And as he stands before God, he can be proud that he did not work in vain or labor in vain. And we can rejoice with that as well. Pray with me. this God, we thank you. We thank you for this passage. God, we thank you for the encouragement and we thank you for the challenge that we need to work out our own salvation God, we understand that we're not working to be saved. You have done that all of your own. But God, you have created us in Christ Jesus for good works, and because of that, we work hard to achieve unity in the body, unity in the church. God, would you encourage us tonight to, to work hard, to put forth every bit of effort into attaining unity? And God, would you encourage us that when we cling to the word of life, our life is worthwhile. God, I pray that we would be people who cling to the Bible, who cling to the word of truth with every fiber of our being and that we shine bright as lights here in Fairdale and wherever we may go. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.